Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Friday, November the 12th, and we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles as we study the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. The preacher, Solomon, ends our time by saying, remember your creator. And it's exactly like a, a grandfather maybe given a last will and testament to his, his children, and Solomon's doing it for the, for the readers, which reminds us of our identity in the Lord. And obviously, we see it through Christ's goggles, our identity in Christ, where he puts the icing on the cake at the end in chapter 12. I'm so excited to be into this because Ecclesiastes has been such a blessing. It can be seen really as a downer, but it ends on a powerful and gracious note, for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. For more information about their great work around the world, visit lhfmissions.org, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we have the joy and honor of having with us Reverend Dr. John Nunes, Interim Pastor at Lutheran Church of St. John the Evangelist in Brooklyn, New York, and also the author of the new book by CPH, Meant for More, In With and Under the Ordinary. Dr. Nunes, welcome to Thy Strong Word. It's great to be here with you, Brady, and thanks so much for your ministry. John, this is our first time together on Thy Strong Word, and, and we have new guests all the time. So can you spend a few moments telling us about yourself and your family? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on your program. Uh, I've been a Lutheran pastor for about 30 years, a bit over 30 years. I served as president and CEO previously at Lutheran World Relief, and I'm the outgoing president of Concordia College, New York. Uh, Monique is my wife. We are blessed with five daughters and one son, mm. and we're even more blessed with a 12 grandchildren, oh, okay. and a 13th coming, uh, predict, is predicted to come on the uh, 25th of uh, December on Christmas Day, so it'll be a great gift for us. Wow. If we had known how much fun grandparenting was, we would have skipped parenting all <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> okay, anything else you want to highlight? No, I, yeah, I'm just delighted to be here. I, this, this has been a, uh, a, a, a crazy, thanks for the chance to dig deeply into Ecclesiastes. It's the first time I've dug this deeply into the 12th chapter, so I'm excited to uh, talk with you about it today. And another, another book I wanted to highlight, Dr. Nunes, that you wrote was one that I read during seminary because my fieldwork church was in North St. Louis at Bethlehem Lutheran Church with John Schmicke. And so one of the books I read after I was there for a few months was Voices from the City that you uh, wrote in 2004. And that book, or at least, I don't know if it was then, but uh, the Voices from the City, which is a wonderful book and captures the great ministry that happens in the city. So I, I, I just want to ask you, you have any insights on that book or um, any thoughts on it? Because I, I, it's one of my favorite yeah, books. Yeah, I appreciate, Brady, you remembering that. You know, to be remembered is a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm thankful for CPH for you know taking a chance on me in the 1990s and uh, publishing Voices from the City, which really talks about the contagious passion um, that urban pastors have to shape uh, character and to shape faith uh, among very uh, dynamic and diverse audiences, like the uh, sort of community you served there with uh, Pastor Schmitty at Bethlehem Lutheran. 
Um, and it's a great opportunity to serve in urban settings. And I, and I tend to capture that, that passion uh, in Voices from the City. Well, as a reminder to our listeners, keep praying for our pastors in the inner city as they uh, preach the word and care for souls and, and work in such a unique way. And if you have time, read that book, Voices um, from the City by Dr. Nunes. But Pastor, we're here to study Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And as we put on our Christ goggles, can you begin our time in prayer? Absolutely. Um, your program is called Thy Strong Word. Yes, sir. Which, yes, course, it is. Uh, comes from the, it comes from the hymn by Martin Franzman, who was one of my favorite hymn writers. So as an opening prayer, I'd like to use um, a stanza from another one of his hymns that I think really relates uh, to the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. O Spirit, who did once restore the church that it might yet recall the bringer of good news to all, breathe on your cloven church once more. That in these gray and latter days, there may be those whose life is praise, each life a high doxology unto the Holy Trinity. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And as we look at our text today, reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions concerning Ecclesiastes 12 or um, throughout Ecclesiastes, we always try to answer questions. Even when we are past the book, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Now, John, we are at the end of Ecclesiastes, and we started with vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and we kind of get a little bit of that today, but there's a lot of different themes that we can get out of just this one chapter. So how do you want to begin us to start us off on the right foot? Yeah, I I love the way um, Luther describes, Martin Luther uh, describes what's going on here in Ecclesiastes, namely, you know, what sort of uh, conversation Solomon was having this fabulously wealthy and famously wise king, this son of David, the kind of conversation this preacher king uh, was having with the audience that was gathered around him. And Luther suggests that it was something like at a dinner party, like after the meal, Mm. when uh, everyone kind of leaned back in their chairs and the wise king would hold forth. And he would observe over the arc and the trajectory of his life all that he had kind of seen and experienced. And Ecclesiastes, as you know, is probably written at the end of his life. And he's really striking the theme of uh, moderation in all things. In other words, exercising uh, self-control in life. And and he has this uh, observation around that some people may call pessimism. I think it's just a realism, and it's a realism that leads us to Christ. And that's a, that's a good way of putting it. That's one thing, one word we, we've probably said over and over again, that this is kind of like the pessimistic Solomon. But really, when in the lens of faith, and as you said, the dinner party where, where he's reflecting on his life, but as a man of faith himself, that there's a, there's a realism there. And I want to ask this, Pastor, as you said this, you've worked in a lot of different settings throughout your ministry and will continue to do so. Why is it important that we have a realism when it comes to faith and as we see the gospel? Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, this is a really good point. Um, whether you're in like an inner city setting where the consequences of sin are more obvious or in many suburban settings, 
where the consequences of sin are more hidden at times, or there's attempts to hide them, the reality of the brokenness and the fragility of the human condition and the human experience is everywhere around us. And I think, I believe in our culture, there are many religious traditions that uh, kind of taste over that or, or, or don't take the time to recognize uh, just the depth of our, our, our sin problem. Um, but, you know, another thing that Luther says, I, I love Luther, he says that, um, that a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. So we, we, we speak the truth about the way life is actually really lived. And I think that's helpful because you can't find healing unless you accept uh, the place of uh, woundedness. And, and we are, you know, we're, we're wounded um, as, as human persons. And that's the first step to healing is to acknowledge the truth about the human condition. I think Solomon does that incredibly well in this book. Over and over and over again. So I, as we as we step into the realistic realism of, of life, I, I'm ready to um, dig in. Are you ready to dig in? Yeah, let's go. All right. <laughs> Reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And Solomon writes, probably at this dinner party, as he said, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So I'm envisioning this pastor that he is sitting at the dinner table and he says these words. What is he, how is he starting this off? What is he saying? Well, you know, that first word is just, that captures my imagination. I mean, how quickly uh, we are forgetful, <laughs> uh, forgetful of all of the promises, and all of the good things that God has done for us. And the word remember is an important part of the Christian vocabulary, right? Do this in remembrance of me is the, is the promise of God we get uh, when Jesus comes to us in with and under bread and wine with his uh, r- real presence. And, and by remembering, we it's almost like we make that thing real again in our midst. Uh, Jesus then promises us at the, at the end of uh, his earthly uh, sojourn, he says, you know, I am with you always. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the earth. So those promises of remembrance uh, are the first words that Solomon chooses here in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes for a reason, because he, he's drawing us here back to um, an acknowledgement of uh, those things in life that we sometimes uh, pass over so quickly. For example, when you're young, and, and you know I've got more of my life behind me, Brady, than I've got in front of me. Uh, so I remember uh, a time in my life when I thought I was pretty much invincible. You know, when we're when we're young people, we feel like you know we can conquer the world, and uh, and I think again, it's necessary to acknowledge the truth of the human condition, and that's kind of what's going on here. Get, you know, be, be rooted in your faith while you're young, because as life goes on, it gets tough. And tough times are coming to every life. And that's what Solomon is kind of holding up for us here in the first verse. 
It reminds me of a situation that I, I, I've had as a pastor where an older individual, her and her husband, her husband's going through a lot of difficulties and the daughter was really struggling. And one of the comments that the mom made, which really struck me, was she said, this is why you have a church family, because this is the time that you need faith. And she was exhorting her daughter to be more involved in church, of course. But I thought that was a really very wise saying to show what the church is about. And I, I think you really captured that, and Solomon captures that as well, as, listen, you need this as you go through the trials and as you get as you get older. And something that we often, like you said, we forget as we're younger, and I'm still learning at 42 years old, that, that that's something I have to keep in mind as well. Anything else in verse 1? Yeah, yeah. And to your point, Brady, and that, that's a great point, the hardest and the most important work and vocation or calling we have here on earth is this calling around family. And the most important thing we can do for our children at a young age is to root them in the faith, in the things of God. So as they grow and as challenges come in life and as uh, they go through life, and that's essentially what Solomon's saying here, they'll have something that they can hang on to, a deeply rooted faith. So I, I think that's part of the, that's part of the, um, that's part of the reason we have these these things called Christian congregations, where, where the faith can be uh, taught and lived and modeled uh, for you know for for, for 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 children and young people. And then we we get a, a feel. David kind of I always say David. Sorry, Solomon brings us back to talking about this aging that he's going through, and also obviously other people. So verses two through five is what we'll read. Before the sun and the light and the moon, and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because of they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and the one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. So there's a lot of reflection here. What is, what is King Solomon saying? So I enjoy poetry, Brady, and I, and I, um, I love hymnody and poetry and the use of uh, language and working with words and watching the way words work. And as we watch the way words work in this section of Ecclesiastes, we see why this book is a part of that uh, part of scripture uh, that's called the writings or the, the ketuvim, right? The, the, mm. the, like the, little, the poetic part of the scriptures, because that's what he's doing right here. Solomon is, is taking us on a kind of a poetic excursion uh, through various metaphors that describe the physical things that happen to you when you uh, grow old. So the dim, the dimness in verse two of, uh, and the stars are darkened and the clouds return. So we have a kind of a dimming of maybe eyesight uh, going on in verse two. And then we have the grinders in verse three, which are few. He's referring there to teeth, right? The loss of teeth mm. and the physical ailments that come with the strong men who are bent over, the physiological pain that is felt. Uh, in verse 4 there, he, 
he talks about the door shut. And there's some commentators that say that's that's like the sound. Imagine the sound of you know, now this mouth that is without teeth yeah. that are it's kind of gumming itself closed. Um, and then and then it has this rising up at the sound of a bird. Well, you know, the older you get, the more times during the course of the night you will awaken. Mm. And even a small thing can kind of awaken you and get your attention. And that's, I think, what he's kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of sensing here. And then we have the, the the sound of a song, which which is diminished. That's I think that's referring to hearing loss yeah. uh, that that can happen as you age. He goes on through you know verse five. He's really talking about this fear of heights, this fear of falling. This is before the age of walkers when people had you know, a way to kind of mobilize themselves around. He talks about the terrors that you have. Uh, you know, many uh, older people, uh, when you're younger, you feel like you're, as I mentioned, invincible and you can fight off anybody. And when you get older, you're much more vulnerable, much more vulnerable to attacks, much more vulnerable to, uh, you can't fight as, uh, as aggressively when you're older. He talks about the grasshopper here, which is an image of uh, the difficulty that walking has uh, the grasshopper who is failing. And, and the grasshopper was like a skinny little insect. And so he's, uh, oh, he's, got, the, he's got the almonds that, uh, that actually are, uh, are um, graying, which I think is representative of the, uh, the graying hairs that you have, the sign of wisdom on your temples. Uh, so I think what, what, what Solomon is doing here is he's kind of indirectly and metaphorically uh, just taking us on something that we can all see and experience. If you, if you don't know uh, or can't imagine what old age is like, uh, Ecclesiastes can help us here in these verses. Yeah, that it brings back a memory, two memories. Is The first one is my grandfather, uh, my grandpa Finnern was one. We'd go hang out with him sometimes. He was an old uh, uh, air pilot, uh, cargo pilot in World War II, and, and just a, a truck driver, just a very farmer, tough guy. And he and he's like, Brady, when I was your age, I would play a football game, come home, and not a spot on me. You know, I didn't have a bruise, didn't have anything. And now I wake up in the morning and go, where'd that bruise come from? <laughs> is how he talked about it. And he would just reference those kind of situations. And, and at the same time, what a, a, a witness people of that age will give to us. For example, people who can barely walk will, for, will, will just, uh, how you call it, really push themselves to make sure they come forward for the Lord's Supper. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. and the walker, whatever it is. So you get that imagery here of, oh my gosh, I'm wasting away, but I know where my hope is. So for my children, I have four children that what a joy it is when those individuals, and obviously I'm not saying you can't sit in the pews and bring communion to, I'm not questioning that, but I am saying when people do that, it is a strong witness to them that this is that important, that they can barely walk, but yet they know that that's where their source of hope is. And so Solomon really captures that for us beautifully. Anything else you want to highlight? Yeah, it makes me think of this uh, song uh, that Pete Seeger used to sing, uh, How Do I Know My Youth Is All Spent? My get up and go, got up and went. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, yeah, you know, I think Rich Bimler used to talk about uh, senior senior saints. 
and he would describe, you got three categories. You got the, uh, you got the go-go's, the slow-go's and the no-go's. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. What a witness it is when people push through the inevitable hardship that comes in life and keep living. Yeah. And keep living with the life that God has given them. I think that's a beautiful thing to uh, to see. Exactly. Now, verse six, as we read verse six, it, it kind of points us, and Dr. Bullhagen and his commentary, and you've mentioned this too. It points us to to a baptismal imagery, and I want to touch more on that as we, after we hear this. So, verse six: Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. I'm going to stop there because we had talked prior about a baptismal imagery here or anything else you want to highlight in verse six. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to just uh, emphasize or underscore uh, the work that James Bullhagen has done uh, in his Ecclesiastes commentary. It's, it's really remarkable and, uh, and detailed and yet accessible. Very, very well written. But I think we, we see a few things going on in here. Again, the metaphors continue. Right. So what is this silver cord? And commentators across the spectrum have said all kinds of things that it's it's the you know, it's the, the nervous system. Some people have said uh, or others have described it as the relationship between God and humans, the lifeline between God and humans. Um, but nonetheless, the silver cord breaks. So we have a golden bowl. And, and look at all of these um these precious items here. We have a pitcher that's shattered. We have a wheel that's broken at the cistern. And I think there's a contrast here um, about the kind of place of water in the life of the Christian. You know, when I worked at Lutheran World Relief, um, one of our slogans was that water is life uh, because you cannot live without it and you cannot survive without it. And uh, I remember we visited one community in Kenya, and uh, there was a woman there who we asked, you know, what does your community need? And she said, uh, if you just get us water, we'll do the work, and God will take care of the rest. Mm. Uh, that was her answer. Uh, so water is life here, and it, I think it's really interesting to see these kind of these, these uh, vessels that keep water as a kind of remembrance of this, this baptismal imagery, this water that in three splashes names us and claims us and calls us God's own, no matter what age or stage of life we find ourselves. But I think we, we, we have not missed that imagery, the sacramental imagery, imagery here. So we move on to verse 7? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot sure. of great stuff. Okay, verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Uh, I'll do it verse 8 too. Uh, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So what do you have for this? Yeah, I mean, this is the, verse 7 is the only verse in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes that shows up uh, in the Lutheran Confession. Oh, right. Yeah. And it clearly shows us that um, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, in spite of the processes of aging, in spite of the vulnerabilities that we have in life, in spite of, uh, you know, the kind of failure of desire and ambition and even appetite, we are fearfully and want that God's hand has formed us and fashioned us. So I think this verse speaks to the dignity of humanity. All human beings have dignity 
value, and worth. Verse 8 is the general theme, echoed again for us here, of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we see here that uh, Solomon is reminding us, uh, before he goes on to his postscript, um, that uh, of all the things he's seen in life, uh, there's only one thing that matters, and that is a life uh, with God. And that is, it's interesting to have that theme over and over again, because vanity of vanities, that can lead us down a very negative road, uh, pessimism, and you talk about realism. And so I want, I want to touch on this a little bit before our break, is when you hear vanity of vanities, what is the best way for the Christian to read those words and to understand it fully in your mind? Yeah, so I, so I, I think it, it's saying that um, people, places, and things um, will always disappoint us if that's if that's our primary place of investment. Mm. Even even relationships uh, will disappoint us. Uh, the closest relationships we have will. And I think we sometimes put too much pressure on spouses and on family members to give us a sense of meaning and purpose and value in life. And that could only be given to us finally by God, who loves us perfectly with a perfect love and who never gives up on us and who always forgives us through Jesus Christ. And I think that's what this sort of is exposing for us. And I call it a realism because, uh, you know, every family, I've, every single family, you know, Brady as a pastor, every single family member, uh, every single person has, who is in a family has come to me and said, almost like it was breaking news as if they were the only one, but you don't understand, Pastor. I come from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> but every family, <laughs> because of sin, is dysfunctional. Right. And so I think that's the way that we, under, we should understand this notion of vanity. Well, I want to touch on more of this after our break. Right now, we need to take our break. We are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 12 with Reverend Dr. John Nunes, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language, and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are at the end of our time in Ecclesiastes with Reverend Dr. John Nunes. And we are definitely uh, plowing forward and seeing the, the, the realism that Solomon gives to us. And obviously the imagery of aging, 
but also our identity as ones in Christ, as we clearly can see. And so, Pastor John, I wanted to, to touch on this. You, you touch on this at the end in verse 8. Is this that understanding that vanity, but yet we have, we're um, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's our, that's our ultimate identity. Yes, the world's dysfunctional. All of our families are dysfunctional. And this kind of, I wanted to ask this now, and tell me if you actually want to address it later, is this connects, I would believe, to your book, Meant for More, In, With, and Under the Ordinary as we all are dysfunctional. Um, can you tell us about that book and, and how that relates to what we're talking? Well, thanks for asking. I'm really excited about this book and, uh, and, and really proud of the kind of message that uh, it gives. Because I think it's a message that's particularly suited for the time in which we find ourselves. Uh, most of us have this kind of built-in sense that we are meant for more in life. You know, St. Augustine says that you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our souls are restless until they rest. So this is like built into us. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, says that God has placed or gifted eternity in every human heart. So we know that we are meant for more. And unfortunately, we sometimes go seeking that more for which we are meant in spectacular things, in sensation sensational things in a kind of superstardom uh, or a pursuit of being a superstar. But uh, the book attempts to say that the more is found, and it's in the subtitle, in, with, and under the ordinary. It's in the ordinary work that we do, and it's in the ordinary families uh, or subordinary situations we find ourselves in, and remaining faithful within those settings, those settings that can feel like vanity vanities, it's there that we discover the more for which we are meant. That, that's the premise in the book. And you're right, it, it is very much tied to uh, Ecclesiastes. I love it. And as, as we look at that, encourage our listeners to consider purchasing this book, but also to realize that the Lord has given us vocations, and they're not always real exciting, but they're in the ordinary. And there we know for sure that Christ is with us as well. And, and John, as we, we, we're through the first eight verses, but I wanted to just make sure that is there anything else you wanted to highlight throughout those first eight verses as Solomon speaks to us, as you said, around the dinner table? Yeah, I think, I think we've got that pretty much covered. Um, I think that um, I wanted to say just one more thing about the book, if I could. Oh, please. We also please. now finally have an audio Ah, so that's yes. now available as well. So you can find that. Uh, you can Google that and search that and find that, the audio book. But back to these uh, first um, eight verses. I, th- I think we've got them pretty much covered. They, in many ways, frame and form the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so as we move into verse 9, what we have is almost like a P.S. You know, <laughs> and this is kind of uh, added by Solomon at the end. So I'm imagining the dinner party is over. And uh, he's thinking about all of the things he said, all of the observations that he's made. And he just wants to sum it up now for the reader, all of the things he said. And that's what we have in these, in these final verses here. That is interesting, because in verse 8, you would think he would end there, because that's how he begins. And it would be this perfect, like, um, writing style of, I begin there, I end there, amen, we're done. But you're right. Here is the P.S. moment in this letter that he is writing. So I'm now, now I'm even more excited for these last few verses. So verses 9 and 10 we will read. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. 
weighing and studying the arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So what's happening in these, uh, well, this P.S. moment in, the, in these verses? So I want to hang here, if I may breathe, Please do. on this word truth, on the word truth. Um, it's a really you know, interesting word. So Solomon is here speaking in the third person, so he calls himself the preacher, but he's talking about himself. And in that third person, he's uh, validating and verifying that the words that we have through the course of this writing are words of truth. Now, today is November the 12th, and uh, yesterday, November the 11th, uh, was the day on which Soren Kierkegaard, a very famous uh, poet and philosopher and, and theologian, uh, the day he died in 1855, November 11th. And, and Kierkegaard kind of uh, echoes what John says uh, in his gospel, that the truth makes humans free. And then he says, quote, for this reason, truth is the work of freedom. And in such a way that freedom constantly brings forth truth. So imagine Solomon, the wisest and the wealthiest person of his time. And which means that he's free. I mean, when you have, you know, there's a kind of freedom you have by having power, a kind of freedom you have by having money. And now here he is at the end of his life summing up what he has observed through life. And now he has another kind of freedom, the freedom to speak truth, uh, irrespective of who likes it or who doesn't like it. Uh, you know, I actually think that the older you get, the more prophetic you ought to get and the more you ought to speak truth. And that's essentially what verse 9 and, uh, and 10 are saying here, that these words are words of truth. And so he's, he's so that, that's a good beginning point because he says, besides being wise... Um, the preacher brought knowledge, weighing and studying the arranging of many proverbs with great care. So is it kind of like he's reflecting on all this work I did? I did all this and I, 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 I put it together, just, you know, crafted it beautifully. I did all of this. He's not saying that was worthless, but he's saying the point was I'm trying to teach truth. Or how would you, how would you summarize verse 9 as in light of verse 10? Yeah, it's exactly to your point. You know, he, he's describing the way in which he has uh, carved out his argument, you know, and uh, his argument that, you know, for no matter where you look in life, um, for everything there is a season, he tells us in chapter three. And there's just so much truth in that, in those words, a time for everything under the sun. And then, and then he says, well, you know, you have a lot of people who are reminiscent about the past. And he says, that, you know, there's no profit in that looking back to the past. You know, a lot of us, you know, when you get older, too, you can sometimes say, you know, remember the golden days or the good old days. Mm -hmm. days. And he says in chapter 7, verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. He's essentially pulled out from beneath us. Every stool we have to hang on, except for, and he's going towards this in, in the upcoming verses, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And he also says the word, and I, I really appreciate that because it is, it is so easy for us to assume that the past was better 
and we don't really know why all the time, but then we'll talk about, oh, they were so much better when I was a kid, totally denying the truth that was around us, to be honest. I mean, because I always thought, oh, the 50s were really great because I kept hearing about it when I was a kid, you know, um, from, not from, my, from my parents a little bit, my grandparents, oh, the 50s were so great. And then you learn more about the 1950s. You're like, that wasn't so great at all. Um, and so that goes <laughs> into this too. Yeah. And, you, know, you know, it depends on who you were. Too. That's right. You know, the good old days weren't so good for everybody. And, <laughs> I mean, I'd rather go to a dentist in 2021 than in uh, 1951. That's uh, sure. I'm into that. And so he, he's reflecting on his life. And definitely not saying it was all worthless at this point, because he does that throughout the book where he's like, I did this, I did this, and it was all vanity. But here, he calmly says in verse 10, and reflecting a lot of his other words, sought to find words of delight. And I find this uh, similar, and he puts it in there so many times where he says, it is, it is good for the man to, good for the person to eat, drink, and find joy. And I find that in the word delight. I, I want to unpack that word delight a little bit. How do you see that word working as he's speaking here? Yeah, so uh, I can't hear that word without thinking of the 37th Psalm, uh, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so, you know, this theme of the heart that we see throughout um, Ecclesiastes and uh and so it's not around whether or not you have delight. It's whether or not you delight in the right thing. We all have delights, and delights are not a bad thing. But delight in things that are permanent, in ways that are permanent. Delight in things that are eternal, in eternal. So don't make that which is temporary or passing or transient into an, an eternal delight. So have your life rightly ordered. I think that's the way I see this. It's having your delights rightly ordered. And so those verses, like I said, there's a lot there. Anything else you want to highlight in verses 9 and 10? No, I think we're good with 9 and 10. Okay, all right. We'll keep moving forward as we have a, a unique uh, connection here in verse 11. I'll just read verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. So he talks about wisdom, and he talks about the one shepherd. But what are the connections he's making? So really interesting is this notion of the goad. What is a goad? <laughs> what does it mean to goad? Well, goad is both a noun and a verb. I, I like, as I mentioned, I like words. I like words that are both nouns and verbs. Mm-hmm. You know, like like love is a noun and a verb. God is love. And he's a he's a God of love who demonstrates love so it's about the noun and a verb so it's really interesting i i, I wonder if goad is is functioning in, a, in an interesting way here where we are goaded uh in the same way that uh, a, a goad is a spiked stick that's used to drive cattle mm-hmm. uh, so we're kind of goaded in love right but it says that our goading is, is a firmly fixed goading in other words uh, the words that come to us uh, throughout these uh, 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, they, they stick. They, 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 these are wise words that goad us, they kind of drive us, and then they stick us in our faith. Our faith sticks to the, to the object of our faith, who is Christ. We're kind of fixed firmly uh, by faith on that object. I think that's the sense that he's trying to 
get out at the beginning part of that verse. And yet, I guess that's a wonderful imagery. I'm trying to think of how the goading would be like a use of the law where it shows us our sin and kind of, how you call it, points us in the right direction or says, okay, don't go that way, go this way, um, kind of language that I'm thinking of. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, that, this is this, Solomon's doing this all through the whole book, right? <laughs> he, he says, you know, the pain that you have here, this pain that you feel in life, it drives you to Christ like the goading, it drives you to Christ, which is a good thing. And when you get to Christ, here comes the gospel, you will not be disappointed. You will be embraced by the grace of God forever. So, you know, I, you know some of us, if we didn't have problems in our life, may not ever have been driven to Christ. So I think God allows and permits the, this kind of suffering in order that we can be conformed to the image of God's Son. In fact, God predetermined and predestined this suffering over our life in order that we can be conformed to that image. You, you can actually see that in the Confessions as well. Um, and give me one second, I'm just looking this up. Yeah, um, in the uh, Formal of Comfort, it says that the same God who sets eternity in our hearts before the foundation of the world, this same God has predetermined the problems and the pain that would work on us to shape us into the image of God's own Son. So this is the kind of way goading, which is kind of like the law, as you say, uh, firmly fixes us in faith, which is like the gospel. It, it's accomplishing something or doing something for us and in us and for the sake of the life of the world. I just don't like to be goaded. I'll say that publicly. <laughs> I don't like yeah, when no, that happens no to me. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. And so then, he, but, you know, the old, the old self hates it. The new self understand it <laughs> right and it's like uh, the next prayer should be thank you lord for the goading that you have given to me uh it's, it's not a not a normal prayer that we have so then our he, god is a goading god uh, god is a goading god yeah let's uh let's make up a new song anyways um it says and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by the one shepherd so i want to stick with the like nails firmly fixed I, I'm not. I'm not a builder. I, I don't fix things real well. So, what is he saying about the nails firmly fixed? Yeah, neither am I a builder, but I think Solomon was, wasn't he? Did Solomon build something? I, I, he built a, something small, actually. Yeah, nothing significant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the United Kingdom of uh, uh, of Israel, right? That's he right. built uh, an amazing uh, edifice to the glory of God. And so Solomon knows more than we do about what it means to have a firm foundation and what it means to be firmly fixed. Um, and I, like you, uh, I've got soft hands, so I, I don't quite, quite know as much. And, uh, but nonetheless, uh, again, if you think of these goadings uh, as also that which uh, kind of affix like nails our, our faith to its object of the faith, um, who is the shepherd? Now we're creeping up on this shepherd scene here, the one shepherd. And, and I believe that this is a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ. So we are firmly fixed by faith, uh, by the shepherd. It, it is the shepherd who does the work. Um, it is the shepherd who uh, oversees um, the, the flock. Uh, it is the shepherd who both goads and cares for um, uh, those who are in uh, his uh, his charge, 
So I think that's kind of like the image we're, we're seeing. It's kind of a confidence that we can have in faith to be firmly fixed. And so I was reading this, like you said, with the with the nails. It's that understanding if you take something that's loose and you firm it up, and and it you know the Lord firms us or collects us, keeps us together, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the collected saints, they are given by the one shepherd. Now, I want to I want to stick with that a little bit because we, you know, like for in our church, you know, we have all the I am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John uh, in our stained glass windows, which is such a blessing, such a good teachable moment. But when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, how would you see that in light of how Ecclesiastes speaks? Because this really is what I would consider to be the the, the clearest uh, putting of Christ in Ecclesiastes in the whole book. And so I'm trying to think of how to, you know, and I look at that stained glass window, I am the good shepherd in light of Ecclesiastes. How would you unpack that for, for us as we see this today? I think the shepherd image, uh, which we don't have available to us, much in our culture um, is, a, is a perfect image for what those who have undergone what Solomon describes. That's exactly what they need is this. And you know, it says the one shepherd. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, that is a kind of singularity. I think maybe Solomon kind of thought of himself as a, a shepherd of the people of Israel, right? David was a shepherd, his father. So he probably had a sense of what it meant to be a shepherd. And um, and so, but he, he, he's kind of pointing here to another shepherd who, who's even beyond himself. And, um, and it's not by accident that he says the one, the singularity of this, the one shepherd, I think points, uh, points us uh, again to kind of, Prophetically, this is a thousand years before Jesus is born that this is that this is written um, that this comes together uh, for us, and uh, but it points us forward um, to to, uh, to to the one who is the eternal shepherd. Uh, of, of the people. Is that sort of what you're looking for? I, you know, I, I, you run with it as you go. I'm just trying to think through this because I see that stained glass window. And then I think about Solomon. Yeah. You're right. I mean, he would have had the imagery and the thoughts of shepherding because of David. And at the same time, as a king, you have to shepherd people. I mean, that's just the way it goes when, you, when you're when you working. And, and for us to see this whole book, when I see this one shepherd analogy, he is, he is really guiding people on these paths of pointing them back to the Lord continuously, whether it's maybe goading them, you know, kind of nipping at their heels at the end um, when, they're, when they're ahead of them or he's out in front of them where they're following or uh, they're gently or he's gently guiding them. Um, he doesn't have to use the goading. He just has to kind of show them the way um, by, by his grace. And so I, I really don't know, and I would have to study this more, and I probably wouldn't find it because, I don't know, I just maybe wouldn't have, but the one shepherd analogy is, is absolutely a perfect way to end this book. So I'm just trying to reflect on it. I'm, I'm, not try, I'm trying to be around my own dinner table here like Solomon. I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but <laughs> anyways, any other thoughts uh, at verse 11? I, I, I think uh, I think we've I think we've got verse eleven covered. I'm, I'm excited to move on to verse twelve. Too. All right, well, let's do verse twelve. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. 
So I want to start here. What did you find on my son? It's kind of a unique addition here, the PS moment that he's having. Who is my son? Well, I think he's, the reader is, uh, I, that's what I think. I think the reader is the, is the uh, solemn, Solomon now at the end of his life has a kind of uh, a, a paternal approach. Uh, not paternalistic, uh, but a paternal approach. He's the, he's kind of the father of the nation at this point, uh, who is you know the one who embodies wisdom. I think that, so. He's really this is a this is a term of endearment, right? Because he's got the possessive uh, my, right? So that's a that's a um, that, that that's a term of belonging. That's a term of relationship. Uh, my son, and so I think it's just a very so. Although he uses the third person to speak of himself, the preacher, the preacher, the preacher, then he moves right here directly to um, a, a direct address of of those who are sitting around that dinner table um, and those who were the children in his nation. That's my reading. I think yeah, that's, I think that's what it refers to here. Yeah. Well, it definitely would have perked the ears of people. At the end, because you could get into, oh, he's just teaching, he's just reflecting. But now it's like, this is for you. You know, this is this is for you. This is not, you know, I'm not talking in generalities anymore. I know you, these individuals. And when you say my son, or kind of like when you talk about a friend, my friend, or like I have a son, I have three daughters, you know. Uh, I don't say my daughter, my son necessarily, but something along that those terms of endearment, endearment that not only tell you identity, but say, okay, from here on out, Listen to what I have to say. And so he says this, my son. And then what does he have to say to these individuals, the readers, um, that he really wanted to emphasize in this verse? Uh, that's, that's a really good point, Brady. Um, and I want to return to this notion of son and children yeah. at the end, because I think it connects also uh, to verse 13. I've got a little story I want to share oh. related to the next verse. But, but back here to um, beware. <laughs> Of anything else, uh, you know, beware of new teaching. I'll tell you, I was standing out in front of the Lutheran Church of St. John the Evangelist last week uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and two very well dressed uh, young people, very polite, uh, came up to me. And they I immediately, of course, thought that they were all the usual suspects, you know, um, that there are from all of these different religious groups. I've never met people from this particular cult, this particular new teaching. Right, that has nothing to do with biblical teaching, in my opinion. Uh, it's this um, cult called Shin Xianji. Hmm. Uh, it's the cult of it's a Korean-based cult. It's the cult of the new heaven and the new earth. I think that what Solomon is warning us against is exactly that sort of thing—a uh, a teaching that does not align with biblical teaching, a teaching that doesn't stand the test of the doctrines of the Old and New Testament as the, the source and norm of our faith, a teaching that is not given to us by the Good Shepherd, uh, but is given to us by, you know, these, these, these false hired hands <laughs> uh, who, who really don't love the sheep. And these young people, I, they, were, they were beautiful young people. They were, they were mannerly, and they were, they were generous, and, and they were Brady, if I may, they were brainwashed. You could clearly see it in their eyes. And, and, uh, and you know, I got their names and I got their numbers. And I'm going to stay in touch with them to continue to, uh, uh, to talk to these two young people. Um, but I think that's exactly what Solomon's getting at. Beware 
of anything else. Of the making of books, there is no end. You're gonna, you can find a book to say anything. You know, we, we love these self-help help books with three easy steps and four quick tips and, you know, six highly effective habits and whatever. And he, so Solomon is saying, you know, you can exhaust all of these things, there's all of this stuff, but, but at the end of the day, the teaching that will last is the teaching of the Good Shepherd. And that brings it back, brings us back to verse 10 when he speaks about truth. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, um, uh, your word yeah, is truth. Yeah, that's what he's punching home here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he's punching home here. He's punching that thing, that, that notion of truth home here at the end. Wow. So let's go to verse 13. As you said, we have a story. We have about five minutes left in our time. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What, what do you have for us in that verse? Well, yeah, I love it. The end of the matter. In other words, that settled it, end of story, bottom line, period. You've got it all. You've got everything you need. Fear God, obey the command. What is the command? To love God and to love your neighbor. I, I love the story of, um, it's actually told by Jerome of uh, in the fourth century of John the Evangelist. Uh, same name as the church, Lutheran Church of John the Evangelist. And, you know, when John, you know, was an old man, and uh, he could no longer walk, but he was kind of experiencing the sort of condition that we see here in chapter 12, and his disciples would carry him. And uh, they'd carry him to church, and they'd sit him down, and every single Sunday he preached the same sermon. <laughs> Little children, you know, like my son, my daughter. Little children love one another. Five words. I mean, the, the good news is that it was a short sermon. <laughs> uh, the, the bad news is that he preached it every Sunday. And so his disciples came in and said, Master, why do you, why do you preach the same thing? He said, and John, John said in response, because if you've got that, you've got everything you need. And I think that's the sense of this verse here. If you've got this, you're God. Keep the command. You've got everything. He says that's the whole duty of man. You've got everything you need here, if you if you if you've got this in this summation, which is just a, I think it's just a, a beautiful bow that uh, Solomon ties to the end of all of these these words. Verse fourteen, and, and he ends: For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. These are his last words, and I'm not left with my head scratching here, but it is a unique way. I would have thought verse 13 would have been the end. Of course, vanity of vanities, I thought would have been the end, but thanks be to God, he didn't end there. Verse 14, he brings it together with those words. What is he saying? When I was a kid, um, we used to use the old version of the creed that, that said that Jesus was going to come back to judge the quick and the dead. Yeah. And I used to think that that meant that no matter how quick you could run, you couldn't get away. <laughs> uh, but of course, it means the living and the dead. And that's just the promise that we have, that we have Jesus is going to return. And uh, the one who knows uh, the fullness of the trauma and the tragedy of humanity and what we've been through and what we go through is going to return triumphant. So I read this verse eschatologically. There's an eye on the second coming of Christ, which for the believer is not judgment, but it's salvation. It's, it's a triumph. 
It's finally uh, the end of all of the vanity that Solomon describes uh, in this book. Pastor, we have about a minute left. As you look at chapter 12, how would you summarize this and encourage uh, uh, other believers and, and, and like you said, the, the, the young people that visited you, how would you wrap this together and, and proclaim the truth that there is within this chapter? You know, I, if I could recommend another resource besides um, James Colhagen, I've got a friend who is uh, the president of Wheaton College. His name is Phil Riken. He's got a book entitled Why Everything Matters, The Gospel in Ecclesiastes. And he, he, uh, he, he describes, in answer to your question, a kind of summation, that whether Solomon is talking about the agonies of old age, or the anguish of losing a fortune. The preacher never holds back from telling us what life is really like under the sun. And that's what I would suggest is, is, the, uh, is the overall theme here in chapter 12 and candidly of the whole book. Reverend Dr. John Nunes, Interim Pastor of Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church of St. John, the Evangelist of Brooklyn, New York, and the author of the book, Meant for More, Giving Us God's Strong Word of Wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Dr. Nunes, thank you for being our guest. Saints of our Lord, remember your Creator. Fear God and keep His commandments, for God will bring every deed to judgment. But it is He who has been judged sinful, so that we are innocent on account of Him. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. Mm-hmm.